Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest, Kristen Cobus dumay a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has a new book coming out called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to write it? Sure. This is a book about white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And I actually started working on this book off and on about 15 years ago. So it's kind of been brewing for a while. And I teach at a Christian university and it was actually some of my male students at the time who introduced me to some of the literature that was popular in white evangelical communities back in the early 2000s, especially one book, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And um, they really thought I needed to read this because I had been teaching U.S. history courses about Theodore Roosevelt and militant masculinity in the early 20th century and how gender, race, and nation are always connected. And they said, yeah, you really need to read this book because this Christian author loves Teddy Roosevelt. And so I, I took their advice and I was frankly, horrified by what I read. Um, and this book was incredibly popular at the time. It went on to sell more than 4 million copies. My own church uh, ended up hosting Wild at Heart Bible studies for the men's group, and it was everywhere. And at the heart of that book was the idea that uh, Christian manhood was uh, essentially militant. It was aggressive that God made men to, he filled them with testosterone so that they could be fighters and warriors. And uh, any, any attempt to restrain that instinct was, you know, likely to emasculate them, to put the church at risk, to put the nation at risk. And um, so that really started this project. I was digging around a bit and I've always kept my eye on it. I didn't initially sign a contract at that time. I had another book to finish and other things kind of got in the way. I wasn't quite sure like how, how mainstream this was, right? Was this like a fringe movement? I knew the book sold like crazy. And then all of this research kind of came back to me in 2016. And I started to see when we saw white evangelicals already in 2015 start to fall in behind Donald Trump. And a lot of people were saying, how could they possibly do this? You know, how could they betray their values? And it just clicked for me that this wasn't a betrayal. This was their support for Trump was very much in keeping with this ideology of militant white masculinity. I had read an, uh, not quite an excerpt, but an article by you regarding this topic. And I noticed we, even in you talking now, you keep saying white evangelical. So would you mind spe like uh, explaining why you specify that so much? 
Yes, that's a really important question because there are different ways of defining evangelical. And some people really insist on a kind of theological rubric. So people who believe certain theological beliefs, the centrality of the atonement and the importance of evangelism and things like this, that everybody then falls into this category of evangelical. And if you use that narrow theological rubric, then most black Protestants in America would count as evangelical and many global Christians would count as evangelical. As a cultural historian, I found that theological definition wanting uh, because I wanted to study this movement. I wanted to study the consumer culture, which I come to conclude is, is really critical to kind of forming the identity of evangelicals, of white evangelicals, the radio they listen to, the music they listen to, um, the books they read. And when you look at the kind of culture of religious communities, you see um, a, a lot of separation between black Protestants, between global Christians, and then white evangelicals. That white evangelicals really are a coherent religious community in many cases, and they are their own religious, cultural, and political movement. And I really wanted to examine that movement and not always say, well, not all evangelicals believe this, and bringing in evangelicals of color as a kind of foil. I really wanted to look at white evangelicalism as a cultural movement. So could you talk a little bit more about this consumerism element? Yeah, so when I thought about, you know, what is um, an evangelical? Uh, and one of the reasons I moved away from this kind of narrow theological description was because uh, many of my students are white evangelicals. And again, I teach at a Christian university. And even students who were born and raised in the church, many of them actually went to Christian schools. And, you know, they self-selected a Christian university. So they're serious about their faith. Still, their theological uh, expertise or even literacy was often very thin. And so I started to wonder, you know, if, if, if theology isn't really at the heart of their religious identity, what is? I, I came to understand that for many, it's their exposure to evangelical culture and their position in the evangelical subculture, if you will. Again, um, and, and this was true for me as well, as I grew up, uh, I didn't listen to quote unquote secular music. I listened to CCM, Christian contemporary music. The only bookstore in my small town in Iowa was a Christian bookstore. And so the, the you know, if you, if you need a gift for somebody, you need a book to read, you get something produced by this kind of evangelical culture industry. You know, focus on the family radio ubiquitous across the white evangelical subculture. And so what does it mean to be an evangelical? Far more than listing a set of theological beliefs, which you may actually not be able to list, I think is your immersion in this uh, largely distinctive subculture. Um, and just as an example, when my students, just last year we were talking about the early chapters of Genesis, and one student raised her hand and shared with me that much to her horror, she realized as a Christian, as a lifelong Christian, she'd never once read the first three chapters of the Bible. And she realized that she had been working her entire life with the VeggieTales version of, um, you know, the cartoon version of the first chapters of the Bible, which are absolutely crucial for understanding, you know, 
evangelical gender roles. God created Adam and Eve, and there was sin, and there's a curse, and all of this. She was really embarrassed to confess this, and one after another, the students in the class raised their hand and said, me too. <laughs> and so, you know, I think we really need to take this, this cultural evangelicalism seriously and see how it connects to theology and where it doesn't connect to theology and see how, how it shapes evangelical identity and evangelical politics. So um, I have a couple of questions, but I guess my first question would be, um, how would you define theology? Are you saying, I mean, I guess you're saying it's not really a Christian theology if it's not from the Bible, because you could have a theology based on things other than the Bible. Yeah, so when I'm talking here about theology, I'm, I'm referring more to how evangelicals would describe theology, right? And, you know, evangelicals pride themselves in being quote-unquote Bible-believing, Bible-believing Christians. And, you know, if you ask them, the Bible is the source of all of their ideals, the source of their gender roles, the source of their political views. I mean, that, that's really the, the self-perception of evangelicals. But again, as a cultural historian, I, I kind of flip things around that their cultural loyalties actually uh, shape the way they read the Bible, if they read the Bible. And when they do read the Bible, which verses do they really cling to? You know, the Bible's a really complicated book and very long, and you can pull a lot of conflicting teachings out of that. What, what's really shaping their theology? What sort of biblical texts do they turn to and how do they interpret those texts? And so that's where I would hold together, you know, it's not that they don't think the Bible is important at all, but that there are other impulses that often precede, quote unquote, you know, biblical interpretation that shape um, what they look to and what they pull out of um, from, from the biblical text. Sure. And then I guess my next question is, it sounds like you're saying that what they actually believe is influenced on more than a Bible. They have certain cultural ideas that, that come from outside of it, right? And so yeah. you can say that their ideas about Jesus come from more than the text of the Bible. And, you know, in your book, some of the, you talk about some of the, the more famous like televangelists and but, you know, your, your title is John Wayne, and we have this idea in American culture about who John Wayne was based on, like, an amalgamation of the people, the characters that he played in movies. Like, that's the John Wayne, and then John Wayne, the actual person. And then also, I could say, we have Donald Trump, the American president, and Donald Trump as he's constructed in various people's minds. And the way that evangelicals see these characters, John Wayne, Donald Trump, Jesus, they would put them in the same basket, perhaps. Yes, yes. So the title comes from the fact that when I really started looking at the popular evangelical books on Christian manhood, I was surprised how little they actually looked to the Bible, right? There's a there's there's some Bible verses sprinkled throughout here and there, decontextualized and such, but you know, it was just filled with Hollywood heroes and a mythical models of masculinity. So, you know, mythical warriors, soldiers, American soldiers, um, General MacArthur, General Patton, um, just filled with all these models of, of rugged, militant masculinity and white masculinity, I'll add. And the, the two favorites really seem to be, um, that kind of rose to the top across many of these books were Mel Gibson's William Wallace of Braveheart fame, and John Wayne. And John Wayne just keeps coming up, just popping up in unusual places as this kind of touchstone 
of true American manhood, which is essentially the same thing as true Christian manhood for Christian nationalists, which, which most of these uh, white evangelicals writing on masculinity are. So, um, so I found that very interesting. And then you're right. There's, there's the myth of John Wayne that's constructed through the movies that he starred in. So that would be, you know, cowboy hero who brings order through violence, not afraid to shoot, right? This rugged, tough guy who, if you look at his movies, uh, in order to bring order, that often comes through subduing people of color, uh, whether it's Southeast Asians uh, in his Vietnam movies or you know, Native Americans, Mexicans. And so there's this, this cowboy hero, and then he's also a war hero. So he kind of takes this cowboy energy, and he's a war hero, World War II, the good war, and then um, also Vietnam, the Green Berets. And so he just embodies on screen this kind of rugged protector masculinity that kind of comes to stand for traditional American manhood. Um, and so, so I, I thought that was really interesting. Now, as a person, he also was very active in conservative politics, you know, friends with Ronald Reagan, spoke, you know, on behalf of Goldwater. And so he, he really does it both. And I think evangelicals love him for both of his roles, for his, his role in, in really helping to mobilize American conservatism in the 1960s and 1970s, right around the rise of the religious right. And also because he is this symbol of true American manhood, this aggressive militant um, masculinity, where, you know, the ends will justify the means. Just very interesting to me. Um, I was thinking about how recently some of the more politically left Christians that I know have been posting artwork of uh, Jesus throwing the money lenders out, money changers out of the temple and saying like, oh, he was protesting too. And, but they're not going to put a picture of him, not necessarily, or I haven't seen it, next to, you know, like Cesar Chavez or, you know, a, a Malcolm X or anyone like that. They're going to separate that. And I have not yet. I haven't seen it yet. So I think that's really interesting. And so, I mean, people have used the Bible to justify or to support all kinds of politics in history. The other thing that I think is interesting and kind of draws a parallel is that you're talking about people talking about Christian manhood and many of the examples they use aren't from the Bible or weren't even necessarily very outspoken about their faith. And yet if I were, like I grew up Catholic and if someone would to ask me or Catholic people I know about womanhood in the Bible, they talk about Mary. And if I were to ask a Protestant or evangelical friend of mine, they might talk about Mary, they might talk about Proverbs 31, like all the examples of biblical womanhood come from the Bible. I think that's interesting. That just occurred to me. Yeah. And I think part of the reason uh, that they don't find, they'll look to the book of Revelation, which is really bloody and, you know, they can get some good examples there. Uh, and, um, and they'll find some in the Old Testament here and there, but no, uh, it, it's really these kind of, you know, quote unquote, secular models of masculinity that work best. And I think that's because, precisely because they are not constrained by what we might consider traditional Christian virtue. 
Uh, so, you know, if you look to the scriptures and if you look at the model of Christ, yes, you know, he, he overthrew the tables, but he also called on his disciples and his followers to, to, you know, turn the other cheek and to care for the least of these and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these are just basic teachings of Christianity, but in many ways they are incompatible with this militant masculinity. And so I think it's no surprise that evangelicals who were embracing this militancy found the best examples to be men who were not constrained by traditional Christian virtue, whether that was, you know, John Wayne, some mythical warrior, or Donald Trump today. So I grew up uh, secular Jewish, and I know a lot of my contact with Christianity has been very confusing, even as an adult, because there's a lot of things I didn't understand about it, which I'm sure would be the same for people learning about Judaism. So I, I don't say that to say that like Christianity is particularly confusing, but um, the overlap between conservatism and the way that you're describing evangelical culture seems very apparent to me in the reliance on secondary sources. <laughs> and it, it does seem to fit nicely into this kind of almost like religious to political pipeline in a way where, you know, just last night for some reason, um, somebody sent a Daily Show clip into a group chat of um, one of the correspondents interviewing Trump supporters, like right after the impeachment. And um, I think earlier in January before everything about our society broke down. And there were so many people that were like, read the transcript, read the transcript, particularly saying, um, read it for yourself. Don't believe what other people tell you about it. And then, you know, the, because it was a daily show, the interviewer was like, and you've read the transcript. And they were like, no, of course not. And then he would just be back like, but you do think it's very important that people read the transcript. And they were like, yes, but you haven't read it. Yes. I'm sure there were plenty of people he interviewed that were cognizant of that and were like, please don't use this footage. <laughs> but the ones that made it onto the clip were people who really, even with that back and forth, really explicit, could not become cognizant of the fact that they were using a secondary source to say that people should look at the primary source. I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, to be fair, I think we all have tendencies towards, you know, agreeing with ideas that align with our constructed identities. And white evangelicals are not the only ones uh, who, who do this. I think there's something very basically human about that. Uh, that said, you know, again, for white evangelicals who really prioritize this, this notion of, um, I mean, you would say primary sources or, you know, that we are 100% based on, you know, the, the words in the scriptures and then to not be aware of the cultural and increasingly political filters that they use to approach that text. I think that's when, when it becomes, uh, frankly, in, in some cases, quite dangerous. Um, and so, so I think that, that again, we're, we, we all fall into these patterns of thinking, uh, liberals, conservatives, evangelicals, um, folks who aren't religious. But um, uh, in this case, it's um, perhaps even more pronounced 
And that's why it comes across as hypocrisy in some cases, but also why evangelicals are such a critical and cohesive voting block that the significance of, of this move on their part really affects all of us in very profound ways um, in this moment of history and frankly for the last uh, half century. And also, you know, I just want to kind of speak a little bit to, you know, we're uh, a feminist podcast. And so like these constructions of masculinity, it's like the emperor is wearing no clothes. Why can't people see like Donald Trump is a, a baby. There's nothing. Uh, yes, he's aggressive. And if, aggress if aggression is part of your masculinity, he has that. But I don't think that he could get into a fist fight with anybody and win. I don't think he would. I think he would run away and have somebody else shoot that person. I mean, and just looking at um, James Dobson, pictures of James Dobson, who is concerned about the wussification of, of boys and seeing him in this adorable Argyle sweater vest as his like promo photo, there's nothing aggressive about him. It's very confusing. Mm -hmm. And so we have ideology and then we have reality. And I mean, that, that struck me too when I was looking at this increasingly militant language that evangelicals were using, especially after 9-11 and in the early 2000s and up to the present really, that, you know, sometimes when I would see pictures of men, you know, attending these weekend retreats or men's groups, you know, that are reading this very militant literature that feeds into the culture wars, that feeds into aggressive foreign policy and this, this real um, political polarization. You know, many of these are these guys are wearing polo shirts and khakis. And I really kind of wrestled with this, you know, does that mean it's not significant? Or does that mean that it's actually much easier to live into these values through politics and through political engagement than it actually is to live them out in your own life? Um, but I think that the significance of this ideology is as much in in what it, it kind of muffles that it, you know, these traditional Christian teachings that ought to have some bearing and ought, ought to restrain some of, of these, um, uh, you know, political convictions. Again, the love of one's neighbor as oneself, turning the other cheek of, of you know, what does it mean to follow Christ who, who you know, offered himself as a sacrifice. Uh, you know, these kinds of teachings why are they not registering today? And, and I think that's where, you know, I'm drawn that there's an ideological kind of coherence here that's extremely powerful. Even if any individual man kind of falls short. And in fact, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I should probably talk to some because it seems to me that for men who are aware, for men who buy into this ideology and who are taught from their churches, right, pastors, religious small groups, that this is true Christian manhood. The average Christian man knows that he's, he falls short, right? He's not a William Wallace. He's not a John Wayne. But he kind of respects and looks up to those men who don't fall short, the men who aren't somehow constrained, the men who are bold enough, who are not constrained by political correctness, who can really, you know, say it like it is and do what needs to be done. And, and so that's really the dynamic that I've observed um, for men who don't seem to embody this masculinity. They kind of admire the men who do properly uh, embody it. 
It's the carrot on the stick. <laughs> yeah, and and you know that this ideology. Uh, I talked with a lot of evangelical men who who grew up in the early two thousands, who came of age kind of during the the height of this, and how for so many of them it left them feeling inadequate. Right. Again, this is very hard to live up to this rugged masculinity, especially if you you know live in suburbia and you just don't really have the battles to fight to prove your manhood. And many um, you know, said that this left them feeling as you know, a, a second-class Christian and as you know, insufficient in their masculinity. And many of these men have ended up leaving the faith and certainly leaving conservative evangelicalism. So it kind of had this opposite effect for them where when they realized that they could never fit into that they ended up rejecting their faith rather than just the masculinity elements of the evangelical interpretation. Yeah, you know, I think it goes hand in hand, but they, they just realized at some point that um, uh, this, it, it just didn't make sense. It didn't hold together. Uh, it wasn't the life that they wanted to live. And I think that um, it's probably rare, but unfortunately, sometimes you see it the other way around. Sometimes you see someone who is secular or even an outspoken atheist who is very misogynist and then winds up jumping onto evangelical Christianity from that. The one example I can think of from about 15 or 20 years ago was the blog, uh, The Raving Atheist, outspoken atheist, but very pro-life and would argue like hell with anyone who challenged him on that. And then his last entry is, I'm a Christian now, Jesus is Lord. And no one's heard from the raving atheist in just about 20 years. And so like this happened when I was in college. So sometime like 2000, 2004. And, you know, it's a very strange thing to, to see happen. But more recently, Roosh V, a misogynist, made his living writing books, how to coerce women into sex. Now he's a Christian and no one's allowed to talk about premarital sex on his forum at all. So the opposite does happen. Like Karen was talking about the church to politics pipeline. It's, it's probably not common, but it does happen the other way around. And, you know, like you said, these, these men who felt like they couldn't live up left. Men who like that idea might be joining. And that's, I think, an interesting phenomenon. That is absolutely the case. And that's something that I, I really kind of track through this book, that new alliances are formed. So again, if we don't think of evangelicalism as a set of theological you know, beliefs, a very narrow set, so then we we aren't always, you know, well, what about black evangelicals or what about, and if we just look at conservative white evangelicals in particular, um, then we see new alliances that are being formed that are actually much more meaningful than with, you know, potential alliances within this broader, more diverse, quote unquote, evangelical fold. So you see all sorts of alliances develop between secular conservatism and also um, Mormonism and conservative Catholicism. That's the making of the religious right right there. But then also, again, this, this bond with secular conservatism. And John Wayne is a great example, right? He's not a religious figure, but he, he became the symbol of secular conservatism and evangelicals loved him too. And so they really bond around this militant white masculinity. And, you know, you can bring that up to the present through talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and, and his ilk and Fox News as well. And I have to say the first time I watched Fox News and I'd already known at that time uh, that 
So it must have been late 90s uh, that it was, you know, kind of a favorite uh, station for conservative Christians. I was frankly shocked <laughs> as somebody who grew up in a Christian subculture that, um, and then you, you know, very quickly online saw this as well, just their kind of sexual objectification of women and their kind of cross masculinity. And, and I thought, you know, wait, wait, what is this? How is this compatible? Because my understanding of Christianity uh, didn't really gel with that. Whereas now that I look back, I understand that it absolutely connected with a white evangelical, a conservative white evangelicalism as it was evolving. And so these narratives of, you know, Fox News kind of hijacked American evangelicalism. I mean, that may be the case in individual instances, but really conservative white evangelicals were already there and they gravitated towards Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity because of these underlying affinities. So it kind of just circles and amplifies itself in a, a certain way. Right. And conservative evangelicals, too, um, had long been skeptical of the mainstream media. And so they've been sowing these seeds, again, for, for over 75 years, really. And, and so they were really primed to, to seek out alternative sources. Uh, Christian radio, again, has been hugely influential across the nation and as the kind of source of trusted news and trusted perspectives. But then they have kind of opened that up to often include, you know, Fox News is on a list of, of and, and, and secular talk radio, all of that, you know, those are trusted sources. And what I found fascinating throughout this project uh, in my research was where conservative white evangelicals draw their boundaries, right? Who is inside the fold and who is gonna be kicked out? Um, just right now, on Twitter, there's a lot of conversation about Christian and evangelical cancel culture. And evangelicals have been canceling fellow evangelicals for a very long time, right? Just, just ask Jen Hatmaker. And, and I mean, just so many examples of if you cross the line, maybe on women's authority, on LGBTQ issues, on, you know, very quickly, you are defined outside the fold. And what that means is, to get back to this kind of cultural evangelicalism, what that means is these massive, you know, Christian book distributors will not carry your books anymore. Christian publishers won't publish you. Christian conferences are not going to invite you. It's very lucrative business, right? And so the canceling is real. It's not just we don't like you anymore. And so it, it was fascinating for me to see over time who gets excluded and who you know doesn't doesn't get published in certain magazines isn't brought on radio shows and so on but who is included and who who is so welcomed into the fold and often very overt racism was not a deal breaker and i trace that throughout the book specific examples but again cross the line on on feminism or particularly in recent years on lgbtq issues and and that's it this reminds me of um, the conversation around the late Rachel Held Evans and how her book, uh, Year of Biblical Womanhood, wasn't carried by some Christian bookstores because it had the word vagina in it. 
And she was specifically talking about uh, biblical commands regarding menstruation. So it was biblical. It made sense. I do like that book. But she was always walking that very fine line, right? And eventually she um, no longer identified as an evangelical, but that was a response to being pushed out of the evangelical fold, right? At a certain point, she agreed and they went their separate ways. And I think similar with, with Jen Hatmaker uh, a year or two later. I'm sorry, I have a ignorant non-Christian question. Does the Bible use the word vagina? I don't, I don't think so. But I mean, she was, she, okay. she, she went through the, the How does it the, avoid that word? The premise okay. of the book is that she went through the Bible and she looked for commands specifically relating to women. And she included the Old Testament in it. And so she looked at like yeah, the, the Old Testament has to have the word vagina in it somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a scholar. You know, I, I don't, <laughs> we need some big biblical scholars here. here. What's we'll the Hebrew word and what's the proper translation? But yeah, the, the Old Testament's pretty earthy on on kind of sexual codes. I don't recall reading the word vagina in my translation, but again, we'd have to bring in some biblical scholars. That's another episode, but that would be an interesting one if we want to continue to cover this topic. What I wanted to ask you about, and um, if it's in the book, I'm sorry I didn't get up to it, but to me it seems like there's a contradiction between uh, the past 30 years, I guess, of evangelical purity culture and this idea of aggressive manhood. How is that reconciled? Yeah, it's actually not the contradiction you might like to think it is, sadly that um, purity culture, it really places the emphasis on um, female purity. It's a woman's responsibility to maintain her purity. And that's because of this aggressive masculinity, the idea that God filled men with testosterone, which makes them aggressive, makes them lustful. And again, if this is how God made them to be, then that's a good thing. But obviously it's not a good thing. Um, they're still holding on to some kind of Christian moral teaching to have purely unrestrained sexuality because that's not good for the family and the social order. And that's where women come in. It's all on women to stay modest when they're not married, um, not to tempt these, you know, hormone raging, aggressive, masculine men. But then as soon as they get married, boom, then it is their God given duty to please their husbands sexually. And these are very high standards. And so if you think that, you know, white evangelicals don't like sex or are somehow anti-sex, if you, if you look at their writings, that's totally not true. They are very, very pro-sex and adventurous sex within the constraints of heterosexual patriarchal marriage. And so, I mean, I was reading Christian sex manuals from the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, they are very explicit on um, all of the ways in which these formerly modest women who are supposed to, right, not tempt men until they're married and then suddenly they're married. And guess what? A lot of them, you know, aren't doing so well in the bedroom. And, and meanwhile, men have been told, you know, wait till you're married and then you're going to have the best sex ever. And, you know, your wife is going to please you in amazing ways. And as you might imagine, in many instances, uh, it didn't work out so well. And so these sex manuals were written to kind of solve this problem, to teach 
married evangelical women how to be sexy, how to please their husbands, and to keep reminding them that it was their God-given duty to do so. Now, what was fascinating to me was this wasn't just because they were um, you know, needing to meet their husband's sexual needs, but these writers understood that the male ego was um, linked to his um, kind of sexual prowess. And if he was not, you know, sexually satisfied, and if, if his wife could not satisfy his sexual needs, then his ego was going to be, um, you know, damaged. Um, and that was very bad for men and for America, because we needed strong male egos in order to have strong male leaders in home, in the church, and in the nation. And so these intimate bedroom details were very much caught up in this Christian nationalism and this aggressive militancy, uh, even on the, you know, on the global stage. And that was really fascinating to me to see. This wasn't just, you know, a, a side comment here or there. This was a persistent theme that sexuality and what happened in the home and ideas of masculine, masculinity, femininity, and intimacy were tightly linked to ideas of, of Christian nationalism and to foreign policy. So you're saying the paradox is resolved in that, like, as an outsider, I would say that the, the ideals of abstinence before marriage and monogamy within marriage of, you know, Christianity kind of clash with what we think of as like a masculine man who sleeps with a lot of women. But you're saying that they resolve that by it's women's responsibility not to tempt men to have sex before marriage, and it's a woman's responsibility to put out enough and be interesting enough so her husband doesn't cheat within marriage. Exactly. And so what happens too is the, the last chapter of the book is actually on sexual abuse in evangelical communities. And, and what you see over and over again is this purity culture shapes the way evangelicals respond and frequently don't respond to cases of abuse in their own churches, institutions, and communities. Because again, there's this idea that men can't really restrain themselves so much. And there, there are horrific examples, many, many horrific examples of victim blaming, even if the victim is a three-year-old little girl. Right, it's it's really um, startling um, to see these patterns, and so uh, a woman is is always to blame, and there is a lot of grace extended to male perpetrators, a lot of grace, a lot of um, cover-ups that happen in these communities. In just the last couple of years, with the Me Too movement and then the Church Too movement, many of these have been coming into light within the SBC, Independent Fundamental Baptist circles, but. I, I've been, again, tracking this for over a decade, and I've been tracking these stories in the blogosphere for a long time, and um, there, there's, there's nothing new here. What is new is now they're getting national press coverage, um, and so uh, in the book, I, I really do conclude that these are not kind of aberrations, but the patterns are just too similar. And they're they're rooted in this ideology. So so I conclude that that this this abuse really is endemic to white evangelicalism itself. I still think that that's such a touchstone to see the endorsements of Roy Moore by religious right figures. Yeah, Roy Moore. And for me, a really a crystallizing moment when I decided to really pursue this project to dust it off again. You know, I just 
you know, set it aside so long ago, uh, was after the Access Hollywood tapes uh, released. And when I watched, you know, there were all, all eyes were on white evangelicals at that point. It was the fall of 2016. We already saw that white evangelicals were overwhelmingly supporting Trump. So the big question that week was, you know, what's going to happen? Really, you know, evangelicals, family values evangelicals can't possibly still support Trump because we have it on camera, right? And, you know, a couple wavered. Um, some prominent evangelical women like Beth Moore and Jen Hatmaker came out very strongly against Trump again. But for the vast majority, you know, they may have wavered for a day or two, maybe a week, and then they were all back again. And that's when I realized, of course, you know, I've seen this before. We've seen this before so many times in their own churches and in their own organizations, why would we expect that this would be different now? Um, and then we saw it again with Roy Moore and again with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Right, and you keep, um, you mentioned it twice, so I do kind of want to come back to this, the men be, being filled with testosterone by God. So you use that phrasing exactly the same twice, and there are a few things around that that I wanted to ask, which is like, is this a quote? from some sort of biblical masculinity stuff that you read? Or is this the phrasing that you're just kind of your shorthand for it? Oh, I think it's my shorthand, but the, the, they talk a lot about testosterone, <laughs> a lot. Uh, and, you know, somebody like James Dobson, who is a child psychologist, so he's got some credentials here. And um, what testosterone does for uh, these folks I'm, is... Sorry, I'm laughing because his training is like 60 years old now. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> right. So what testosterone does is it's biological... And therefore, it roots this ideology in the created order, right? What Christians would call you know, the creational order that God made it this way. God designed men this way. And so it's kind of their way to make this, well, you know, I said that they don't quote a lot of Bible verses oftentimes, but this is a way that they can kind of root this ideology religiously. God made men this way. And rather than, you know, there are many Christian traditions that would suggest, well, the fall uh, into sin affected all of humanity, and maybe aggression is an example of, of sin, and that we need to redeem that and be more Christ-like and loving. That's not the argument that this emphasis on testosterone really, really sets up. Instead, it's... Hey, but women's sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. God made I also... So, because this is one of my pet peeves, I just got my master's degree in behavioral neuroscience, and <laughs> like one of my biggest pet peeves is people talking like, "Well, science says, you know, X, Y, Z about men and women and sex roles and sex differences, and sex is definitely two sexes, and there is no such thing as gender." And it's just like, okay, what science are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like I'm literally a scientist, <laughs> like. Where did you get this idea that this is a scientific concept? Yep, yep, no. And so that's kind of the extent of it. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'll get a little bit more, <laughs> more depth, but for many, and, and many of these guys, these writers, I, this is an industry writing these books on, on Christian manhood. It's a very lucrative industry. And when I first started looking at these books, I was shocked at um, how similar they all are. I mean, there's a blueprint and you just follow it. And you sell a ton of books because there are so many you know, men's small groups, these groups in churches where um, they get together and what do they do? Well, they have a book study, you know, they, they
they need some literature. And so this, there's a massive market for these. And very early on when I was reading one after another that really, you know, they, they, they bordered on plagiarism. Eldridge was the, the best example that, that was copied over and over again. His phrases, his heroes, his examples, that's how we get William Wallace popping up so many times. And, you know, all of this language, there, there's not a lot of creativity here. It's a blueprint and they just follow it. In fact, early on, I was very tempted when I was seeing some of these sales numbers to try my hand at one of these books myself and, uh, you know, pseudonymously come up with. I literally was having the same thought, like what an excellent Grift. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I would sell so many more copies that way than any academic book I would ever write. Yes. That just reminds me of one of the problems with Christian film is that you can't have a character fall too short from a specific set of behaviors or beliefs. I mean, you could have a wonderful redemption story where someone is tempted and like breaks the rules and has a fall and then comes back, but that's not usually what those movies are like. Like at all, maybe they're tempted for like a minute and then they, they go back. And so that doesn't make for very good drama. Right. I know people work hard on these movies, but like, I think that criticism holds. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a Christian film industry that, that kind of builds during this time. And there are some interesting connections between, um, you know, Kirk Cameron and the Vision Forum, more, you know, biblical patriarchy movement and things like that. But then again, many evangelicals also embrace you know, Hollywood movies, the right ones. So anything Mel Gibson has produced, you know, is on that list. The Passion of Christ, they absolutely love it. The Patriot, also popular. You know, nothing compares to Braveheart, but they're all good. So you have these other models, um, even Fight Club, right? That was Mark Driscoll's favorite movie. He liked Braveheart a lot, but Fight Club was what he used as a model for the men in his church. Has he been canceled yet? I can't remember. He has. Strangely, it was mostly um, through um, uh, plagiarism that was his downfall. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could have been other things, uh, a number of other things. But I thought that it was an industry that ran on plagiarism. Right. But he's, he's trying to make a comeback. He has a new church and he's, he's back to blogging. So we'll see what happens to him. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to be with us today. Is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about this topic or about your book? Oh, you know, I would say that uh, just the importance of history here, as we're trying to make sense of what's happening in this moment, which as a historian, I mean, we don't like to talk about unprecedented moments, but it, it feels um, pretty unprecedented. And we're struggling to make sense of what's happening to our democracy, um, what's happening in terms of polarization, uh, and what's happening in terms of faith and politics, and, and frankly, authoritarianism, if I, if I might say that. And what history can do is really help us understand how we got to this point, which is, I think, critical if we're going to have a chance of, of deconstructing you know, some of these movements movements and stepping back from, it really feels like we're on the brink of something. So I would say, uh, you know, look to history. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a very hopeful story because I think by the time I finished this book, I was really overwhelmed by the fact that where we are now comes from just deeply entrenched traditions and deeply held values. And frankly, some days it can be fairly disheartening. At the same time, I think if we are going to start to, to deconstruct some of this, we have to know what we're dealing with. Where can people find out more about you and your book? So I have a website, kristendumay.com. That's D-U-M-E-Z is my last name. Uh, I'm also, I have a public author page on Facebook and I write a lot there. And I am on Twitter at KK Dumay. 
Thank you so much. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And thank you so much, uh, Kristen. I, I have so many more questions. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.